We're going to go back today to the book of John, chapter 11. I had a great conversation with somebody this week, and they, one of the first things they asked was, does Lazarus get to come back to life this week? Okay, Because we've been in John chapter 11 now, this is our third message, and uh, maybe the biggest thing that, that you thought about was, well, John chapter 11, that's the raising of Lazarus, and this guy's taken forever to get to it. Well, today we're going to get to that main part that you think of probably in John chapter 11, and we're going to see in the life of Jesus Christ and who he is as the Son of God, as there's life in him, the Son of God, we're going to see that resurrection power that is found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. So I invite you today to go to John chapter 11, and begin. we'll begin looking here at verse 38, and we'll read down through verse 44 to see the context of where we are today. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe that you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have now set aside in our service to study the word of God together. And we ask that today... You would meet with us and speak to us through your Holy Spirit, through the word of God today. We pray that you would quiet our hearts and minds. No doubt, Lord, many of us in this room, we have other things that are going on outside of church in our lives uh, that would threaten to to creep in and steal our attention away from the word of God. And we pray that uh, you would set those things aside. Help us to make a conscious effort to focus in on, on not the words of a person or pastor here today, but on the word of God. And we pray that you would illumine it for us, before us today. We ask that you would help us to see that in Jesus Christ, there is true resurrection power. There is true spiritual and eternal life found in him. And there is true hope for resurrection from the dead one day. Speak to us today. Lord, I pray for one who may be here today or hears this message, who doesn't know you as Savior, that you would minister to their heart today. You would show them yet again the need they have to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And you would settle that in their heart today. For Christians today, Lord, would you again remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done, the calling of the life of a disciple to live for him and to share that message with others around us. We ask that you would get all the glory and praise for everything that's said and done during this time. Your name we pray. Amen. Some things in life are inevitable. Change is inevitable. Mistakes, surprises are inevitable. The Lions never winning the Super Bowl is inevitable. (laughs) Just there are some things in life that are inevitably part 
of your life experience here on this earth. And one day, barring the Lord's return, you and I will face perhaps the greatest inevitability, and that is we will die. Death is inevitable. It's not something we like to think about. It's not something we we often like to talk about or meditate on or reflect about, but we have to understand and recognize that, that until Jesus Christ returns, death is an inevitable reality that we live with, so to speak. And as Jesus, in John chapter 11, joined his friends in the city of Bethany, he faced what we might say is an undefeated enemy. Death had come time and time again, claiming all mankind since the fall of man back in Genesis chapter 3. Because, Jesus, or because God said to Adam and Eve that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And now we know that's referring to more than just a physical death. There's a, the spiritual death is the larger component of that. But no one in his own strength had ever found a way to beat it. No one had devised a successful plan to escape it. It just always won. But things were different on this day. For the showdown between death and Jesus would end very differently in John chapter 11. Jesus, who has declared in the passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, that he is the resurrection and the life, had come into the world. And as the resurrection and the life, he would give not only physical victory over death in this day in John chapter 11, but offers to us eternal spiritual victory and the promise of a physical future victory once again. And so here in John 11 verses 38 through 35, through 44, as we look at this idea of resurrection power seen in Jesus Christ, we see that because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he holds all power over death itself and secures all who trust in him. I told you several weeks ago when we began John chapter 11 that oftentimes what we think about in John chapter 11, if we think about this guy named Lazarus who comes back to life through the, through the work of Jesus Christ, and oftentimes we think about then, we think that Lazarus, well, he's kind of the main character of John chapter 11, but in reality, he's not. Because as is with every other passage in the book of John, Jesus Christ is the focus. And this whole chapter reflects and shows us that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So from the very beginning of John chapter 11, where Jesus talks about the preeminence of the glory of God in these things and goes on to talk about what it means that he is the resurrection and the life and what it means that those promises, what, what, when he makes those promises as the resurrection and the life. Now we see the miracle, the sign, the seventh sign that's recorded in the book of John that proves Jesus is who he says he is. And the next time when we finish John chapter 11, we're going to see the reaction that people have to Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Because again, there's always a response that's elicited by what Jesus does. And then we'll see that again. And I'm not trying to give away the next message, but now you kind of know where it's going, okay? So let's look here today at this passage and and we see what takes place. And the first thing that we actually see in verses 38 and 39 is we see the protested command uh, that's given by Jesus. Look in in verses 38 and the first part of verse 39 and we'll see Jesus' command that he makes here. This is, then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, up to this point, the response to Jesus has been mixed, to say the least. Mary 
and Martha both professed belief in his power. They both came to him, and in their grief, as they were weeping over their brother who had passed away, he said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And, and as I told you last time, that isn't a rebuke, that isn't some kind of a bitterness, that's a reflection of who they are, what they believe in their heart about Jesus, that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus never would have been in the tomb. We saw that that Martha professed him as the Christ, the Son of God, and the Deliverer come into the world to save from sin. And so Jesus then, after that, approached the tomb and silently wept for Lazarus. He wept. Why? He wept because of the consequences of sin that had brought these things on. And we saw at the end of the previous passage then, there was another response. You have Mary and Martha who have professed their belief in who Jesus is and what he is able to do as God. But then you have those other people that that as they watched Jesus weeping at the tomb, they are confused by what they see. And in that confusion, we see also the the, the antagonistic and unbelieving hearts began to mock Jesus, wondering if he could not have healed Lazarus instead of now weeping at his tomb. And so once again, John records for us in, in verse 38 that Jesus is again groaning within himself. Now this is the same word that's used in verse 33. And I told you then that this is a very hard word for us to translate and understand because the word literally carries the idea of snorting like an angry horse. It's, it's more of a, an anger and a consternation of the soul. And we talked about before in, in verse 33 about, about how, how Jesus was moved by, by the unbelief and, and, the different, and the sin and different things that were going on here. And yet again here, the, when, the, when John uses this word, unbelief is yet again in plain sight. Because again, you've you got to bump up back there to verse 37. It says, and some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again groaning in himself. There's a connection here between, between what people are saying and what they, what they believe in their hearts about Jesus and his response. He is moved yet again because people have seen who he is, yet they don't believe. And here, we see what this tomb is. John tells us for our benefit here that this tomb is, is a cave. And that was commonly what was used in those days to bury the dead. Sometimes those caves were, were cut into the limestone that you find there in Israel. Other times they were naturally occurring caves that were used for this purpose. Now inside such a cave, they would level the floor and then they would cut into the wall shelves for the bodies to be laid on when they buried them in these caves. And then, a large stone would be moved into place at the mouth of the cave. Now, this is a a very practical and pragmatic thing to do. It, It keeps the robbers and the animals out of the cave, and it honestly keeps the smell, at least some point, from coming. It keeps it inside the cave. Not to say that it was a foolproof plan, but that's how those things uh, were practiced. And so Jesus comes, as, as is not unexpected, he came uh, to, the, to the tomb where his friend is buried, but he does something here that was not normally done or expected. Those gathered by, watching him weep, weep remarking his obvious love for Lazarus, and confused by his seeming ability, inability to help his friends, are taken aback. We would have been taken aback by what Jesus said next, because he commands them to remove the stone 
from the cave. And I want to make this point here. Okay, this is not a request that Jesus makes. This is Jesus, the Son of God, saying this is what you're going to do. I mean, you go back and you look at it, it's an imperative form of the verb here. That he tells them to take away the stone from the mouth of the cave, from the tomb. It's short and simple. And so Jesus here is, is preparing to do a great work. And, it's, and again, it's, I think it's very interesting, as, as several have noted, as you read on this passage, that, that Jesus asked for them to play a part in this work as well. Do you believe that Jesus, who can raise a man from the dead, could have spoken and the stone would have moved? Well, well yeah. But Jesus also wants people to, to engage in the ministry and the belief of who he is. And so he, he commands them, this is what you're going to do. They are going to move the stone from the tomb. And we see here, as I mentioned to you, this will be an unusual request. There's a surprise that is voiced by Martha, Lazarus' sister. We see in the second part of verse 39, Martha's reaction. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. For he has been dead four days. Martha protests Jesus' command here with her words because her brother Lazarus has been dead four days. And so by now, decomposition has fully begun to set in on the body. The Jews did not embalm their dead. And the arid climate of Israel would promote the decomposition process of the bodies. And so instead, what the Jews did is they used aromatic spices on the body that would certainly help mask the odor that was associated with the decaying corpse for a little bit. But opening the tomb four days after Lazarus' death would certainly bring with it a, a horrible smell. I mean, there's just no way around that. Okay? There's no polite way to say that. In fact, the word that Martha uses here, you have translated as stench. I mean, that's, it talks about an offensive smell. And sometimes translations will try to soften that a little bit or this or that, help us understand that. It's, it's just out front, you know. He stinks, okay. It's kind of the, the idea here because of what's going on. For her, this is an extremely personal thing. She had lost her brother. He is dead and he is gone. And, and we can understand that. She doesn't want the last memory of her brother to be what has gone on four days after he's died. She doesn't want the last memory of her brother to be whatever state he's in now or whatever, whatever he smells like now. Because again, Martha sees Jesus and believes in Jesus that, that he is the Christ, that he has been sent by God, but she does not understand the, the fulfillment that Jesus is about to bring in bringing Lazarus back to life. So she objects to this. She, she protests this command. Jesus would also by the way, be risking defilement with such a command. In the law of God, and in, in this time, clean and unclean are a big deal, right? And so to, to, to interact with a dead body would be to risk ceremonial uncleanness through contact with that body. And so Martha's objection here, again, confirms Martha's misunderstanding of what Jesus had said to her earlier. She believes that, that there's a coming resurrection in the last days, but she did not believe that Jesus was preparing to presently raise her brother from the dead. And so as she protests this command, Jesus then, in response, reminds Martha and the others who are there of the preeminent purpose of God in all of these things. And we see that in, in verses 40 through 42. 
In verse 40, Jesus reminds her first of the glory of God that must be preeminent above all. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So first we see Jesus' response directly to Martha. Now, this is both a declaration of hope that Jesus is giving to her, that God is going to be glorified in these things. It's a reminder, but it's also a mild rebuke to her to, to, to trust in who he is. Now, you may look at this, and if you remember back to what the conversation Jesus and Martha had, you might ask this question, when did Jesus say this to her earlier? When he said, did I not say to you, you would believe you would see the glory of God? Because if you look at the personal conversation that Jesus and Martha, that, that John, the part that John recorded, we don't have that there. But I would ask you to remember back to what Jesus shared with his disciples and then presumably the messenger that was sent by Mary and Martha at the beginning of this chapter. If you go back to John chapter 11, verse 4, Mary and Martha had sent a messenger to Jesus saying that Lazarus was ill. And before, presumably before that messenger returned, this is what Jesus said. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, Jesus knew the end of this encounter, and he declared it from the beginning. Jesus knew, before it even happened as God, that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. He then specifically told Martha her brother would rise again, and he called for her personal faith in himself as the resurrection and the life. And so once again, Jesus here calls for her faith, or he, Jesus calls for her faith to be placed in him. He calls for her to believe in his power and his authority to raise Lazarus to life, because that's what it takes. It takes both power and authority to do something like this. He calls for her to cease her concern for her brother's dead body and instead to focus on him and him alone. He calls her to make a personal choice of faith. Now, this does not mean that Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead was predicated on Martha's faith. It's not like, well, if Martha didn't have enough faith, it wouldn't happen. That is a misapplication of this passage, okay? As we will soon see, the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection had already been determined to be done in God's will and plan. Instead, Jesus points out that Martha, through her faith, can see the glory of God through her belief in Jesus. That her personal belief in Jesus as the resurrection and the life, Jesus says, would glorify God. When we place our faith in Jesus, we bring glory to God who has sent his Son. In our place. Obedience to God always brings glory to God. And the greatest act of obedience that we can engage in is accepting Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. As of acknowledging that, that we have a sin problem and cannot save ourselves, and placing our full faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, conversely, the greatest act of disobedience that we can ever engage in is to reject Jesus Christ. And I've said this before, that, that rejection takes different forms. There's outright 
rejection, right? That, that, we, that we throw, throw it back in, G, in God's face, so to speak, that we will not accept that. But then also, we give, our pass, uh, we give ourselves a pass sometimes on what we may call passive rejection, where we say, well, Jesus is nice, but I also need this or that or this. And, and, and anything that you try to add to your life with Jesus Christ is a rejection of Jesus and Jesus alone. We have to understand that. We have to accept Jesus as our only way to God. The salvation of sinners from sin brings glory to God alone. And Martha, through faith in Jesus and his power as the resurrection and the life, would see the glory of God in her own life. And this entire account in John 11 revolves around the glory of God seen in Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. So Jesus calls her personally to faith in himself. And then we see in the next two verses, Jesus offers a very public, pedagogical prayer to God the Father. He says here in verses 41 and 42, as he prays, we see Christ's purpose in these things. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, and they may believe that you sent me. It seems here either by Martha's silence or her unrecorded consent those objections that she had have been answered and she gives permission of some sort for them to open the tomb. Because here the stone is removed from the tomb and then Jesus turns his eyes heavenward to speak in prayer to his father. And here Jesus addresses God as his personal father and he alone can do this for he alone is the son of God. This is not the same way that that those who belong to, to the family of God through the adoption that is available in Jesus Christ speak to God the Father. Jesus speaks to God the Father in, in a much different way, for he is the second member of the Trinity, God the Son. And Jesus, knowing what is about to occur, gives yet another lesson to those standing by listening to this prayer. Now, perhaps those of some of us, many of us in this room, I would, I would say especially those of you who have had children uh, and you've been in, maybe you, you've, you've known the Lord uh, a good point, a portion of your life that you've had children, perhaps you have been guilty of preaching to your children through your prayers. Anyone ever done that? Okay. I see some laughing and chuckling, right? Maybe I'll ask your kids if you've ever done that, okay? And you know, you, you, you pray something like, Lord, help us all to be kind to one another because if we don't, bad things are going to happen and consequences, right? And, and that's not really a nice thing for one sinner to do to another sinner, is it? I mean, we would be much better off addressing the situation head on, right? Uh, or humbly admitting our own faults instead of hypocritically calling for the altering of another person's behavior under the guise of prayer, Right? But what you see here that Jesus does, Jesus is not like us, right? He is not a sinner. He is God the Son. And so he uses this prayer to God the Father in a much different way. He uses it to instruct those people who are there. He is perfect and in perfect communion with God the Father. And so therefore his prayer is quite instructive to everyone who hears it. And so what he does first is he thanks God the Father for hearing 
his prayers. Now, Jesus always acted in accordance with God the Father's perfect will and plan for God the Son, for he is one with God. Therefore, whenever whenever Jesus performed a sign, it was met with the full power and enablement of God the Father. And Jesus knew that God the Father always heard him, for he is one with the Father. But the opposition that Jesus continually faced, and we have seen all throughout our study of John, they maintained that Jesus was not one with the Father and that he did not do the works of God. And that might bring back to your mind several of these passages. And if, you don't, if you're not sure, you can go back and look at them later here in the book of John and see that, that they maintained you are not one with the Father. You are not come from the Father. He does not, you are not do these things that, that line up with him. So there would be no doubt here uh, uh, what an incredible and mighty work had been done and Jesus sought the belief of those others in himself and his divine origin as he prayed these things. I mean, you read in, in verse 42, I know that you always hear me, but because these people who are standing by, I said this, they may believe that you sent me. He prays and asks and thanks the Lord, thanks, thanks God that he, that he hears him establishing there is a connection between himself and God the Father, and then what follows is the sign that authenticates it. And as Martha confessed in verse 27, Jesus had been sent into the world by God as the deliverer. And Jesus sought belief in himself through these mighty signs. His mission was not unauthorized by God the Father, but was instead ordained by him, and the sign that was about to follow would authenticate this reality. And when you and I look into the word of God today and we read it, you and I can also be assured of God's actions. God is who he says he is. And he has done what he says he has done. And he will do what he has promised to do. And so therefore, he offers you eternal life in himself, a complete and finished work. He offers you a changed life, a life of fulfillment, joy, and peace. This is why Jesus was sent. And so with that prayer offered then, Jesus now initiates the last recorded sign of John outside of his own resurrection. So so John records seven signs, miracles that Jesus does. This is the last of them. Now, many people will argue for the eighth as the resurrection. You can take it either way, right? I mean, certainly, it it definitely proves who Jesus is. This is the seventh one that's recorded by John that Jesus did for others. And so now we see in verses 43 and 44, that power revealed. In verses 43 and 44, we see the sign. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Jesus now directs his power and authority into the tomb. And the text here, by the way, emphasizes the volume at which Jesus communicated this command to Lazarus. The word here that you have translated cried already means to shout or exclaim something. So then, John adds another layer on top of that. 
John says with a loud voice, that descriptor there in Greek emphasizes in that Jesus is not whispering, he is not speaking in normal tones, he is shouting into the tomb, commanding Lazarus to arise. There is little doubt of all who were in the vicinity, they would hear what was said and they would observe what had happened and they would hear who had said it. And I think it's interesting and something really for our consideration, the ancient church father Augustine remarked that if Jesus had not called Lazarus' name, then all those who were dead would have come out of the tomb. And in the future, one day all will rise again. Those who know know Jesus Christ as Savior will rise to be with him. Those who do not know Jesus Christ will rise again to stand before God in judgment for their sin. But make no mistake, you will rise again because this life is not all there is. The command that Jesus gives here is succinct and direct. Literally, that phrase that you have translated, come forth, could be translated here, outside. Literally, that's what it means. Jesus is commanding that which with man is impossible. No human being in his right mind would walk up to a a tomb, say, open it, and shout into there, Lazarus, come forth, and expect something to happen, right? If, If a mere human did that, we would think, what is going on, right? But Jesus, the resurrection and the life, not only can, he does. And once again, John records the incredible result of this sign with what I would call muted understatement. And we don't get any description about this is what happened, this is how people reacted. He just says, and here he came out of the tomb, right? I mean, do you ever look at that and go, man, I mean, you've got to give us a little more, John, right? But perhaps this is John's way of communicating this is who Jesus is and how powerful he is. You don't need all these descriptors to say this and this and this. No, Jesus is who he says he is. So he said, rise, and he rose. And you can, you can see here then the, the picture that happens. The man who is dead now begins to come out of the tomb. And, and again, we don't have these things recorded, but just imagine, if you would, the scene that unfolds, unfolds in front of the tomb. I and mean, those who have been weeping for their lost friend and relative now see what they assume is him emerging from the tomb, which was supposed to be his final resting place. Perhaps there were some who panicked at the sight of a man wrapped in grave clothes emerging from the tomb. Most likely, when you read about the grave clothes here, Lazarus did not look like some kind of mummy hopping out of the tomb. I think that's kind of the idea we get, you know. He was just, you know, he's hopping along, you know. But, Instead, there would have been loose strips of cloth that were wrapped around his body that would have allowed him to walk in an awkward manner. And then the, the head, as we read there, is wrapped separately from, from, the, from the body. And there's different ideas and, and, and takes on how we think that was done. Some think it, that literally it was just a sheet that was wrapped around uh, the body and then like a napkin that was around the head. We read, that, we read about the napkin and, and the head when Jesus' burial takes place, by the way. And to, and, and what, and to what must have been a stunned silence or even mild alarm, Jesus speaks very practical instructions. Do you catch that? I mean, I think that, that communicates a lot about what's going on. I mean, everybody's watching this happen. Nobody's thinking about, hey, we should help this guy, right? 
Because again, put yourself there. What are you going to think, right? You've never seen or heard anything like this before. He tells the bystanders to release Lazarus from his grave clothes so that he could properly move about. Those who had come to mourn Lazarus' passing now become the agents who, who complete his resurrection, Jesus, uh, complete his resurrection, freeing him from what, that which had been part of his burial. The people there, they didn't have anything to do with Lazarus rising from the dead, but they did get the help in that they helped him get back into his normal, everyday, you know, I can walk around now. And we can only imagine then the reunion that took place between Lazarus and his family. We can only imagine what Lazarus thought and experienced in all of this. Again, these are dangerous things, right? But did your brain ever go there, right? Where was Lazarus? Was he, you know, hanging out and with, with the saints, and then all of a sudden he was like gone, right? Because if he believed in Jesus, he was in eternity, right? He was with the saints, and then he's not, right? He's back on the earth as Jesus called him back to life. What an incredible display of Jesus' power and authority as the Son of God. The resurrection and the life proved his identity and power beyond the shadow of a doubt, and therefore, there are implications for our lives because of that. I'm going to spend just the last few minutes of our time together today talking about the implications that this resurrection has on our lives today. This climactic sign recorded by John serves to show us yet again who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, at the present time of this miracle, when Jesus performed this, it was anticipating what Jesus would do when he himself would rise again from the dead. The truth is, Lazarus rose from the dead and he died again. Okay, you understand that, right? Lazarus isn't still walking around. You don't go to Israel and get Lazarus as a tour guide, okay? Whether it was by sickness, old age, persecution, something else, he physically died again and was buried. However, Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, would rise again with a new and different hope. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22, we read in our scripture in this morning, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he offers you the hope of eternal life in himself. Paul calls him the first fruits, the one who has come before all the rest. Because Jesus is resurrected, you have the hope of resurrection. Just as Jesus claimed victory over physical death for Lazarus and later for himself, he has claimed victory over eternal death for all who trust in him. Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. I don't know about you, but I hate death. I hate what it does to our, to our lives here, to our families. I hate what it does to our community. I, hate, I just hate everything about it, right? 
But in Jesus Christ, there is hope in death. He offers us victory over death itself. And listen, you, you don't have to go far and look very far in this world to see that, that you and I may not be the only ones that hate death. People who don't have anything to do with God, they hate death too. That's why they go through such great lengths to find a way around death, right? And sometimes we shake our heads or we scratch our heads at some of the links that people will go to to try to preserve themselves or hope that they'll one day come back. And we have to understand that the victory over death that is offered to us is not a victory you and I can win on our own. The only way to an eternity in heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Plain and simple, if you try to get to eternal life on your own, you're never going to make it. And if you try to rely on your own good works to get you there, you're going to find no sure footing in this life either. Works don't save you. Money won't save you. A prayer won't save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ will save you and give you the assurance you seek. On Christ, the solid rock you must stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now, faith in Jesus Christ, sure, is expressed in a prayer. Paul talks about that in Romans. Confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and turning to him. And yes, works and actions change as a natural result of the Holy Spirit's indwelling of a believer. But all of this begins with a personal decision to set aside everything else I might depend on and throwing myself wholly on Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. And that's where it ends. And then as a disciple, Jesus calls for your devotion to him. We in our lives are are so easily distracted. We are so prone to worldly attractions and so given to what we think will make us happy or complete. Christian, the only thing that that will fill you with joy and fulfillment is what brought you into a relationship with God to start with, a singular focus on Jesus Christ. I think that's the danger sometimes in the life of a disciple. I think that's the danger. I've had this discussion even over the last couple of weeks with different people, I think it's the danger even of what I call the privileged church where we live in first world United States, right? Because we enjoy so many things. We enjoy the freedom of religion and this and that. And we get so easily distracted by the things of our lives. Well, I need this or I need that. If I don't have this, if I don't have that, well, I really don't want to give this up or that. Christian, the only way to a fulfilled life in Jesus Christ is to focus on Jesus and Jesus alone. It doesn't mean that you have to go live in a monastery somewhere or you have to be at church every day of the week doing this or doing that. Because again, that's not what it's about. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we want to live lives to the glory of God and experience the joy of God in our lives, we need to continue with that focus. Everything else that we do in life, everything else we enjoy is filtered through the lens of Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus possesses all resurrection power. So let us give all glory to him. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he holds all power over death itself and secures all who trust in him. Jesus, as God incarnate, displayed power and authority unlike anyone else. This is because he wasn't just anyone else. 
He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and the Savior of the world. He alone can claim victory over death for Lazarus, and he alone can claim victory over death in your life as well. And if you have not trusted him with your eternity, my friend, you can do that today. In his grace, God calls you to see Jesus for who he is and place your faith in his finished work. And if you have done that, I would remind you that the life of a disciple isn't always an easy life. And if you're a disciple who've walked the road of life, you say, yeah, I've been there. (laughs) You might be there right now. In fact, it's not a sinless life. It is oftentimes that the life of a disciple is a struggle against sin with the help of the Holy Spirit. And I would say to you, do not be discouraged or fear in your struggle against sin in your life. God's grace is greater than your sin and able to strengthen you to follow him faithfully. When we sin, we don't fear God's going to throw us out of the kingdom. We seek his forgiveness and restoration and strength and power to hopefully we can say no to that sin next time with his help. No, what we should fear is fear the apathy, fear the fullness of your hearts in sinful things and ask God to convict you of your sin that maybe we don't even see, that we may serve him in greater ways. See, sometimes what we do, we respond to sin in an ungodly way. We think, well, I just, I just want to enjoy this or that. Instead, we should fear that apathy and settledness. Like, well, I'm okay with that. Let's not be okay with that. Let's ask God, no, God, would you convict me of what is wrong? And by the way, if you pray that prayer, be ready. That's a prayer God answers. And it might make us uncomfortable, right? It might mean we got to change some things in our lives. But that's Okay. Because we can be trophies of God's grace and testimonies of his goodness for the life that he has brought about in us. Because see, if you know Jesus Christ, you are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You are alive in him. And you have a hope that lasts for eternity. Father, thank you for the word of God that you have given to us. Your word to instruct us in your ways. And Lord, we ask that you would use that word in our hearts today. We ask that you would convict us of our sin today. Lord, again, for one who has never trusted you as Savior, that you would show them who you are and the finished work you have done and invite them once again to place their faith in you. We rejoice as heaven rejoices in one who may do that. Lord, for disciples who are here today, followers of you, Help us not to grow settled in our privileged first world Christianity lives. Help us not to grow distracted by the things that we have going on, but help us to remain devoted to you and you alone in all things. Even as we go about the busyness of our lives, some of the things that we we have to do because part of being a, a good citizen of the kingdom is living as a good citizen of whatever earthly kingdom you've put us in. Help us to keep you first and foremost in all of these things. Help us to find hope for the road ahead in who Jesus is and the power of resurrection that he holds. And help us 
to display that hope, not only with our lives, but with our words, and, the bur- and we pray you burden our hearts to share that message with those in our lives we have the opportunity to that we know they don't know you as Savior. Be with us now as we close our service. We pray that you would bring us back tonight to worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.